Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's all-in podcast on genre television, currently focused on Watchmen. And this week, we are talking Season 1, Episode 5, Little Fear of Lightning, which goes all-in on the squid pro quo of it all, as well as a much closer look at the man beneath the mirror mask, Looking Glass. And I'm joined here, of course, to break it all down with your friend and mine, the great Antonio in the sky, Antonio Mazzaro. Are you ever going to dance again? I was just going to say, Josh. That guilty feet have no rhythm? Guilty feet have no rhythm. Is that the careless whisper I hear playing in the background? Yeah. Uh, are, are those the strains of George Michael? Not George Michael Bluth playing in the background. Yeah, what a what a Looking Glass episode. The, that song clearly follows him in many ways throughout the episode. And, and it's uh, we get to see Eleven 2, Josh. We get to see the event. We get to see the original squiddening. We get to see the squiddening, the, 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 the sudden arrival. Yeah, of, the sudden arrival. Of. Of, of, uh, of the great squid that has been uh, much ballyhooed around these Watchmen parts. This is very exciting for me, Antonio, because if you read the Watchmen graphic novel, or even if you're just passingly familiar with it, and certainly if you've been watching the, the show from Damon Lindelof and his fleet of uh, creatives from which it stems, you know that the comic book ended with a massive squid arriving in the middle of New York and causing the deaths of millions and thereby presumably changing the world. Reversing the doomsday clock is no longer uh, a minute to midnight. Things are starting to turn around. But that's never been captured on live action before. Zack Snyder made his film adaptation and ended Watchmen the movie differently than the comic book. The great change, the great systemic change in the culture that occurs in the Watchmen film is owing thanks to a hoax involving Dr. Manhattan. So it's a very different storyline that's not properly adapting the story as it exists in Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' graphic novel. So to see the squid, the squid, that big one-eyed jerk uh, <laughs> in the in the middle of New York at, at the end of this first sequence of the episode, Antonio, yeah, I was thrilled to see this. I was so surprised to see it, to see the events of 11-2, as you say, November 2nd, 1985. Well, you're describing the fun part uh, as New York, New York with Fra- by Frank Sinatra plays as we pan out over New York, the quote unquote fun part. But we also see that that's the, the thousand foot level, if you will. But we see the 10 foot level in Hoboken. And that's it less is fun. Brutal. Less yeah. fun. Much less, less fun. fun. Much even less though fun. it's at a carnival setting uh, and even though there's a fun house, it is horrible to behold and i love that you call it the sudden arrival considering damon lindelof's connection of course to the leftovers and the sudden departure of it all and how that series begins with us seeing the moments after the sudden departure and how we see the sudden departure play out over the course of that series i uh, hear we see through wade's eyes what what it was like in the moment it doesn't matter if you weren't right there when a squid fell on you you died from the psychic issues related to the squid which I think is sort of not not something that we've underreported, but maybe is a little bit under, or misunderstood or not directly understood as a result of everything from the graphic novel and then as ties into the TV show. So, Josh, what we're dealing with here is not just a giant squid that falls out of the sky and knocks a bunch of stuff over, crashes through buildings, uh, make breaks some cars, whatever. We're dealing with a psychic squid, right, which releases a psychic blast that causes a lot of destruction and damage, even if someone is not directly harmed by the squid. Yeah, unless you're surrounded by so many mirrors. 
but it's hard to know what <laughs> or kind some of reflectatine. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to know the extent of the damage. I mean, in in the comic book, in the aftermath of the squid's arrival and decimation of so much of New York, it's reported that many of the survivors had like psychic images of squids from another dimension imprinted on their brain, and that's part of Ozymandias's plan. That's part of Adrian Veidt's plan that the the brain was you know the brain of the squid was divined and created using the map of like a very powerful psychic in the world of Watchmen. A sensitive, I believe, is the word that they use in it. And so there's people who have like these vivid ideas of of where the squid comes from. And that's a big part of why you imagine the attack is accepted as as interdimensional fact, right? But how does that work with Wade? Is is Wade, who, by the way, I mean, we're we're burying the lead to a certain extent that this is a tremendous stellar Tim Blake Nelson showcase episode of a a character who's been so cool and and calm and collected in the background and has been um, sort of like the heir apparent to whatever like cool you divined from the Rorschach character in the graphic novel like whatever your nostalgia memories are sorry to use the word nostalgia when it has such a specific purpose I hope you took your pills in this episode to then get like kind of like the origin story of this man to see that he was uh one of the jehovah's witnesses uh who who came to new york in the in the face of doomsday which again this is ripped straight out of the comic you see jehovah's witnesses in new york city and in the moments before the squid arrives in the wake of 11-2 so just another clever way of tying this TV series to the source material, but the episode really highlights the the lifelong trauma this event has taken, you know, the toll that it's taken on Wade, who is a survivor of the direct attack, and it, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, I think to some extent it matters what he saw, like if he's like psychically linked to the squid, but it, it, it kind of doesn't really matter. What really matters is how traumatic that whole thing was. Even in the moments leading up to the squid, forget like the squid itself. Uh, you know, he's lured into the fun house. He's stripped naked. You know, he keeps saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And then his, he's, his clothes are taken and the woman runs away with them. He's left stranded in the fun house. It's the not so fun house at that point, <laughs> Antonio. And yeah. he's staring back in the mirror and like his faith is compromised at that point. And he's just like gutted and devastated. And then the world changes forever. So like, it doesn't matter what kind of like actual psychic impression the squid left on him those events are enough to traumatize a human being for the rest of their life seven years of bad luck it's no wonder that his alter ego that he creates as a crime fighter is uh, someone with a looking glass on his face uh, or a mirror guy reflectatine reflectatine mirror guy he is a mirror guy he's forged in mirrors Uh, this uh, key event in his life is mirror related and he is looking at himself in the mirror directly as as things are happening and it is uh it is something that he carries around with him obviously through his relationships guilty feet have got no rhythm as the careless whisperer directly points out uh and this is something i i think he carries this guilt around i don't know if he still has any religion, there is no sense of that really in the current version of Looking Glass. But young Wade certainly did have religion, and it makes you feel like, did he? does he feel like he was in some way responsible? Did he feel like uh, it was his own sin uh, which brought about some of these events, or that he deserved what happened, that he deserved to be there? I don't know, but it does seem like those are the sorts of questions that have haunted Wade his whole life, and that he is still very much in the tunnel, as it is said in this episode. And he has not found the way out. It is 
I think very telling, not only does he have issues with relationships, but his spouse, his ex-spouse says, I, I tried to convince you for seven years that I wasn't going to pick up your clothes and run away. And Wade says seven years, bad luck, of course. But it is not just the squiddening. It is not just the sudden arrival. It is not just the event that has this effect on Wade. It is just everything around it, his age, what he was doing there, the moments of picking up his clothes and running away. A trust was violated there. Uh, and then the whole rules of the universe were changed in the same period of time. So all those things happening at once for young Wade, very rough. Uh, we see them play out, and he says, what happened? He's screaming that as we see all the bodies on the ground. With, uh, like, the shot. clown in the background yes, as horrible. well. He's, like, in the mouth of madness. In yes, literally, quite yeah. literally, in the mouth of madness. And all those people, of course, that had been bullying him, including a guy with eyeliner and a man bun who I guess was supposed to be intimidating, um, was <laughs> uh, they're all dead, uh, but so are probably all his people. There are only a few survivors there left. It is very clearly an event which the vast majority of people who were there are now gone. So whatever the doomsday clock was set at, it seems like it has gone off. And yes, it is a squid event, but this is an event that clearly still defines what Wade does. We see the alarms at his house. We know he can't even wear a hat uh, without a mirror because squid are still falling from the sky. We see him at his support groups, and we see his like just obsession with running drills with his alarm uh, right. to get into his bomb shelter there. So this is something that haunts him on a daily basis. We have talked a lot about on this very podcast why is he sitting at his home still wearing his mask? Like, why is he still doing this? Uh, now we know why. Now we know it's because the mask he believes, as well as the liner of his hat, protect him in some way from these psychic blasts uh, or the waves that may have been emitted as a result of the sudden arrival of the squid. And they, they prevent that from happening when his guard is down. So he's always geared up, uh, especially when squid are falling out of the sky still regularly now. Uh, so this is something he's carrying with him moment to moment. And obviously a great feature episode for Tim Blake Nelson. It ends, Josh, with uh, 7K uh, getting to his house. I hope it's not the last we see of Tim Blake Nelson. I sort of doubt that it will be. I highly doubt that it will be. I'll also just quickly shout out, we've got an interview with Tim Blake Nelson up at THR.com slash Watchmen if you want to read more of his really amazing thoughts about playing this character, some of the expectations he had of him, some of the expectations that were greatly defied by uh, the events of, of the script from here, from 105, from Little Fear of Lightning. Yeah, I don't I don't think that we've seen The Last of Looking Glass by a long shot, but I think we have to, like, we have to process you know, because once again, the world changes for Wade Tillman in this episode. And it, it's 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 such a fascinating look at a at a at, at a survivor of this world and what it you know, it, in many ways, certainly the, the show is highlighting and, and one of its central theses is the rise of white supremacy in America today and, and how racism is being challenged in the world of Watchmen as a parallel to, to how it's playing out very uh, on, on a very wide scale here in our world but in in many ways the the world of of watchmen of of the alternate universe 2019 uh you know this is a world where a lot of environmental problems have been curbed 
curbed. There are, you know, uh, electric powered cars, battery powered cars. As you and I have said, thank God the internet is dead. <laughs> you know, so, you know <laughs> some some things that that are different where like you, you can imagine just sort of the the culture maybe being a, a, a happier world. And I, I really appreciated getting to like kind of live in this world of Watchmen from the perspective of not just somebody who, you know, has a, a complicated relationship with the world, but somebody who is a direct descendant of the of the point of origin for the world of Watchmen as we see it, which is the squiddening. And you get that through Wade, but by the end of the episode, thanks to Senator Keene, who, by the way, unmasked at this point as yeah. uh, as uh, in league with the shocked seventh, with the Seventh Cavalry. Yeah, you know he's he's in league with them, and he is going to present this video of Adrian Veidt that is recorded on November first, nineteen eighty five, which to quibble just a little bit. Uh, November 1st, 1985, being one day in, va- in advance of November 2nd, 1985, where, where the squid arrives. Uh, in the comic, Adrian Veidt says to, to Night Owl and Rorschach that there's no universe where he's telling them his master plan without there being a full 100% certainty that it's going to work uh, and that you know he did it 35 minutes ago. But he recorded like full confession like a day before. <laughs> you know, hey, he like, didn't have to release that tape if it so, didn't work out. He, he wasn't just, releasing the tape until 1993. Yeah, so he could have just like, fired it into the sky and maybe disappeared into the atmosphere. And it's just a little bit risky, I thought. Like <laughs> maybe you want to like record that on November 3rd would be uh, would be the better time to do it. But ni- neither really here nor there. Either way, the video is played for uh, for for Wade, and it's a great scene for a number of reasons. The digitally de-aged Jeremy. Irons as Adrian Veidt is an awesome version of that character, uh, just like his mannerisms, sort of like the the young buck energy that he yes. that, that he brings to it is. Congratulations, is, Mr. President. Yeah, it's just a, it's a lot of swagger and it's a very different version of Ozymandias than I had envisioned from the graphic novel. But I love it. I'm not mad at it at all. So there's that piece of it. There's the the transformative quality as it relates to Wade, which is what I really want to dig into. But I think it's very helpful for people who are just watching the show who don't know the comic who aren't even listening to us right now, who aren't like, you know, doing like the deep dives into the extracurriculars surrounding Watchmen and are just watching it unfold by themselves. Uh, This is a very helpful piece of information that is now like revealing to, sort of in the same way that when Jeremy Irons a few episodes back goes, Adrian Veidt, and just like confirms what we already know at that point. It's it's less about like uh, the fact that these are like big surprising reveals for us as like the comic book audience uh, and more about the delivery of the information, but not to be taken for granted for, to some degree that this is big information and big reveals for people who don't know the, the comic book. But as it pertains to Wade, this is once again, the world completely changes. You know, the, the mirror is like, you know, it's, it's shattered once again for him in this episode. Definitely. And we don't even know to what extent because we don't even see him watching the full video and we don't see his actions in the immediate aftermath after watching it. We know a few things. We know he comes back and he does what Senator Keene had requested in getting Angela into a position where Lori is able to arrest her by getting her to admit in front of the cactus microphone what her uh, role in covering up details about Judd Crawford's murder was. We also know that he's not able to completely leave his extra-dimensional security behind. The device that he destroyed and then overnight ordered another one of has shown up and he throws it away, but then he goes back to get it. So he has not completely misplaced. What he says to Angela 
parroting a line that Senator Keene feeds him is, is anything true, is anything true. And so I don't know that he knows exactly what to do, uh, where to place his faith, where to place his focus. Uh, he's in a very tough position after the events of this episode, obviously, in terms of his worldview. But we know that he at least does act upon what Senator Keene was hoping to do. Senator Keene's second part of that discussion was saying, you watch this video and it will free you. You won't have to be afraid anymore because you will know there isn't some extra dimension that we're pulling objects from and we could at any moment pull another giant squid out and kill everyone. This was a hoax. And now that you watch this video, you know it's a hoax. And yet he picks up the EDS security system, the extra dimensional security system, and he, he removes it from his garbage can. He, he has not made his mind up, I don't think, on what is true and what's not. And that's a difficult position for him to be in, obviously, since his worldview has been so anchored going to support groups and doing the things that he does around the fact that there was a squid incident. Uh, and he's so upset when he goes into the 7K compound and he finds the uh, the dimensional mirror there, right. uh, that they're throwing basketballs through something dimensional there. It's so upsetting to him because he believes that they're very close to creating another event. So he I, he this is what is is very serious to him. The fact that he's not totally left it behind, it's not surprising to me, even though he's seen the video, because I don't know what he could replace it with. It, it requires literally changing everything you think about the world, uh, and it requires no longer listening to George Michael, and no one wants to do that. No one uh, wants to do that. <laughs> because the Careless Whisper has played throughout the episode. We get it in a piano form. We get it in an acoustic form. We get it in a covered form. We get it in the George Michael version. We get it in an, a distorted version of the George Michael right. version. It plays and echoes throughout this episode because he has all these issues that he carries with him, uh, because he has the guilty feet, uh, and because he's never going to dance again, because he's never going to get back to the place that he was, uh, it really is something that haunts him. And so I don't think you can unring this bell in terms of the effect that the dimensional fear has had on him, even when you show him this video, even when he acts on what he saw in the video, I don't think you can unring the bell in terms of his level of fear as a result of it. This is a guy who's always going to carry that around with him, regardless of what caused it. It's something that affected him greatly. Even finding out the difference in the cause is not going to change, I think, a ton about how he looks at the world. It may make him more cynical. It may make him say, what is even true? But I think he's still going to be very afraid of some of the things that he's afraid of, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, we're, we're left with a lot of questions at the end of this episode. How much does Wade believe what he saw? He certainly complies with the squid pro quo, which is chef's kiss to the turn of phrase, right? I mean, Damon Lindelof loves a good pun. Yes. Uh, you know, and, and this written many, many, many moons ago, too. So to, to get the, the quid pro quo in the in the cultural ether. No quid pro quo. No quid, no squid pro quo. <laughs> uh, and it fits right in there, right. It's pretty nice. You know, Wade certainly complies, right? Like he gets Angela off the board. Is that intentional? Is it when he has her come over? Is it because of desperation? Uh, like, is, is he forgetting that the cactus is bugged? And by the way, don't take it personally. They're the FBI. They bug shit. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a great line. Again, Gene Smart killing it. You know, is, is it something that he's actively doing or is there? And I think it's still up for interpretation right now. It's the beauty of the week to week that the way that he he looks at the cactus after Angela has said what she said, that she covered it up and it was her grandfather. Did he forget that the cactus was bugged? Did he knowingly lure her over so that he could get her off the board? Not to, you know, to to forget that the way that Senator Keene frames this for Wade is 
I need you to take her off the board because either she killed Crawford or she knows who did. Uh, and either way, I need her off the board. So get her off of the board. And if you can't, I'm going to have to send all of these racist, uh, right. all, all this, my racist <laughs> army to go and kill her. And I'd rather avoid doing that. So is is Wade trying to look out for her in his own right? Has he bought into their ideology is a troubling interpretation. And then when he goes back into his house after picking the security system out of the trash can after having just deposited it and the 7th Cavalry uh, rolls up and they walk in shotguns and, and weapons in hand, what happens there? Are they coming there to kill him? Are they coming there to abduct him? Are they coming there because they all have a, a th th he's fully indoctrinated now and they're about to have a beans party where they're all just going to sit around and eat beans and plan their next move? Seems but, unlikely. But it's those beans that I would like to spill because the way that I feel and the way that I hope it's going to play out, and my fingers are very firmly crossed that this is the way that it's going to go is I think Watchmen has really positioned us to like look at Looking Glass through something of a Rorschach lens as something of a Rorschach type of character uh, as somebody who who really believes in in the mask as his true face somebody who who believes in a certain set of rules in an uncompromising way and when that mask is compromised or when the the the, the judgment and value system is compromised there's no compromising around it and and for looking glass obviously his worldview has been shattered in a massive way and there's so many interesting questions surrounding like how to react to that but there's so many obvious ways in which the show is like kind of mapping rorschach as he existed in the comic onto looking glass not quite as many of the problematic ones unless he's like kind of on board with 7k now in which case like looking glass is canceled <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you you see so many times how, how Looking Glass like rolls up his mask and only shows some of his face. There's obviously plot reasons, literally plot armor around his head as for why he is he is wearing the Reflectatine, uh, because he believes that that's going to keep him safe from the psychic abilities of the of the squids and the potential, you know, damage uh, incurred by squid fall. But it's also that's that's how you would see Rorschach very often. He would roll up his mask just a little bit to eat food. Speaking of eating food. Rorschach was the kind of guy who would break into somebody's house and eat the weirdest of snacks. He loved to snack on sugar cubes, but he also loved to eat your beans. Uh, he in, in the comic book, he goes to Dan Dreberg's house, the Night Owl, and just opens a can of beans that Night Owl, Night Owl had hanging around and is just eating like the raw beans. And that is something you literally see here from Looking Glass in this episode. So if you're continuing to look for ways to kind of like map Rorschach onto Looking Glass, one of if you saw if you remember the movie well, certainly it was. Uh, I, I remember that this was one of like the, the the clips that they showed from the movie at New York Comic Con before uh, Watchmen came out. Uh, this is like back in the day when I was when I was covering the show. I believe for Comic Book Resources at the at the time when I was covering the film, I was at that panel and they showed Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach, and you hear him. He's in prison and he like splashes the hot vat of oil on the prisoner's face. Everybody knows he's Rorschach at this point. He's put so many of these people behind bars and he's trying they're trying to intimidate him and then he just like barks and bites right back and as he's being dragged away by the cops he has this signature line that's so great from the comic and very memorable as Jackie Earl Haley delivers it in the film easily one of the best parts of the film just the the performance and the scene in particular when he shouts you you guys don't get it you all think I'm locked in here with you but you're locked in here with me is that what's happening at the end of this episode? I hope so. You know, are, are the 
seven or is the seven K marching into Looking Glass's compound? And I think it's it's valuable to remember that this is basically a compound. He's like he's like Kevin McAllister. He's got you know he's got the place wired up. He's got the security alarms in place. He's got masks in vaults. He's got a bunker, uh, you know, a, a, a veritable safe room there. Is he fishing the security system back out of the garbage can because he doesn't know what truth to accept yet? Or is he fishing it out because he knows that there's going to be something that he can weaponize from this thing if he suspects that 7K is tailing him and is about to walk into his room and he's about to you know, step into a world of hurt if he's not properly prepared? This is a man who, as you see in his bunker, has a degree in, uh, in extra-dimensional squid activity, so probably understands the technology of this stuff fairly well is there some sort of you know combustible apparatus that he is able to use uh is it is there an alarm that he will be able to trigger from this thing that will cause alarm for 7k that will get him close enough to stabby stab stab grab a gun shooty shoot shoot and get his way out of the situation so i'm optimistic about wade's chances of surviving this thing and i am choosing to believe while we still can while we still have this as an episode that's over open for interpretation that Wade is going to be a real force of power here for the remainder of the season and that this is not going to be somebody who is going to be in league with the very vile outlook of the 7th Calvary. But I think we also have to now evaluate and we're in the uncomfortable position of having to evaluate. So what do they want to do? What's their plan? Right. What's going on here? What? Why are they throwing basketballs through portals? What do they plan on doing? We know they're not going to drop a squid in the middle of Tulsa. Keen says nobody wants to just see that again. It's already been done, which is a nice meta comment on what's happening here with Watchmen. But Antonio, what are they doing? Does it involve lettuce? Does it involve? How does it involve watch batteries in some way? Because we know that that's what they were after. Uh, why are they trying it with basketballs? Are they trying to relocate something from that area all over Tulsa? Um, to what level is the senator involved in that plan? And why was it so important that Angela be taken off the table in that specific way? Why couldn't they just have kidnapped her? Why isn't he okay with just murdering her? I don't know, ultimately, if they're on the same side or opposite sides as Lady True and Will Reeves, who we saw at the end of last episode, seemingly have their own plan, or maybe it's the same plan, that is going to be taking off within the span of a couple of days. And so to the Senator's plan with 7K. So are these plans the same? Are they oppositional? Why do they require Angela to be arrested? Why did they require bringing Wade in? Was it specifically just to get Angela arrested? Wasn't should, Surely there were other ways to accomplish that plan that didn't involve getting all of this information directly into Wade's head and putting him in the position that he's in. Now he knows. Now he's in this inner circle. Do all the 7K know? Has the senator showed them all that video? Do they all know that he's the senator? He only wears the mask for them. How did he assume leadership of this group? Uh, and also, he's a senator? So clearly, some of these things hopefully will be answered as we go. Uh, obviously, I think the larger questions will be in terms of what their plan may be. But a lot of that really still is up in the air. And for me, the biggest element of it is, is what the senator and 7K are up to 
oppositional to or in concert with whatever Lady True and Will Reeves are up to. Right. The senator seemed very interested in getting Angela arrested because she either murdered his friend Judd Crawford or she knew who murdered his friend Judd Crawford. Well, the only person we know who was directly at the murder site and who called Angela about the murder of Judd Crawford was her grandfather, Will Reeves. Right. So if Will Reeves was involved in the murder of Judd Crawford, then it would seem that he's in opposition to the senator, unless the senator was just saying that to Wade. I, all of this is very unclear, and clearly that's what we're looking for answers on. What I will say about Wade is, as far as Looking Glass, Wade watching that video of Adrian Veidt, we see in this episode throughout in a lot of the, um, I wouldn't call them interstitials, but the segments in between the bigger scenes where he's doing his marketing research work, he has this ability, and of course it is uh, exacerbated and augmented by the reality that he, when he puts people in the pod and he wears the Looking Glass mask, he has, perhaps because of his psychic uh, touchness, he has the ability to know when people are lying. He knows, for example, uh, that that the, the jobs that are said by what's going on. You know, he's not a she's she's. Oh, you are a radiologist. You're not. You're not this. Right. You're not a waitress. You're not that. Paula Malcolmson. He, Paula Malcolmson. Trixie in the house. Yeah, Al Al would not have approved with her going on her own and doing what she's doing here. But so so be it. Yeah, this is a this is an ability that Wade has. Uh, he can tell when people are telling the truth. So I think he would have watched that video with Jeremy Irons, with Adrian Veidt, and known, okay, he's on the level here. Everything he's saying about this being a hoax, it is true what he's saying. So I think he would have known whether to believe that or not. So walking away, it's funny, for a character who has this sort of sixth sense or preternatural ability to tell what is true and what isn't, to have the rug pulled out from him such that at the end of the episode, he wants to know, is anything true? Uh, that's a 180 from the guy who can see right through the New York, New York, New York tourism ad, Josh. It's a guy, it's a 180 for that guy in, in the course of the one episode. So I don't think he even knows what the senator is up to. I don't think he knows what's going on. Uh, he does make the decision, uh, as you're observing, to sell Angela out, whether it's a decision or he does it on accident. I tend to read it that, that it is his decision I and agree. that he's probably doing it to, to keep her safe right. more than anything, right? Yeah. Because of the overt threat that's made on her life by the senator, you either do it or, you know, we'll, we'll kill her. Either way, it works for me. So he does that, and he's, he's doing that, I think, to protect Angela in that instance. I don't think he was doing it to make her take the pills, I guess at some point now we're going to see what happens when Angela yeah, takes the nostalgia pills. Well, we know what nostalgia is now. Well, we know right. what, the, what the pills are, and it's nostalgia. Uh, again, stemming back to the comic, nostalgia was a perfume, I believe, that Adrian Veidt uh, and his company had developed. I don't remember there being like any like anything involved with it other than it was literally a perfume. Um, yeah, I, I just I, yeah, he was marketing a certain type of thing, but he wasn't. I don't think he was selling pills of memories. Like right, I don't think no. that was part of what he was. No, doing. and you see, you see the nostalgia perfume bottle is a big piece of one of the issues in the comic where Laurie Jupiter is uh, now Blake is um, is finding out that Edward Blake is her father, that the comedian was her father, and like you see the the perfume bottle like spinning through the air on its way to shattering on the ground. Right. Uh, so nostalgia has like a a big nostalgic hook in. Into, into the comic for sure but it was a it was a different thing 
back then. Um, yeah, it was just like it was just cosmetics. Like it wasn't it wasn't pills, right? Yeah, it was like it was, but it was, but it's very effective, like thematically. And yeah, so now now it seems like it has this real utility. Like uh, uh, Wade's wife is like, yeah, these are nostalgia pills, and like every, everybody who finds out what these pills are seems to be like, yo, <laughs> whoa, those are memories. Like that's a big deal. Uh, and it certainly contextualizes what what Will Reeves says several episodes earlier. Uh, he's like, I I'm, I need help. I need them to help me remember the pills. So yeah, I I assume you know there's uh, there's more to that story there for sure. Antonio, we can't not talk about the fact that there's this New York New York advertisement, the, the Come Back to New York campaign, featuring Michael Imperioli, uh, <laughs> telling uh, you know how uh, I came back for the Italian food. You know how we like our squid now with lemon and a little marinara. Yeah. Uh, you know, cousin cousin Christopher on the scene. Antonio, how does The Sopranos exist in the universe of Watchmen? We know Spielberg made Pale Horse uh, presumably in place of Schindler's List. Sounds like it. Considering the, the black and white quality of Pale Horse, the movie, and the red coat that pops. Right. Um, <laughs> what, did, <laughs> what did The Sopranos look like if it existed at all? And if not... What is Michael Imperioli most known for in yeah. the world of Watchmen? I want to know. Yeah, did Goodfellas happen? Was he Spider, or did that not happen? Yeah, like, did what? Spider make it? Did Spider make it? Yeah. I thought I thought you said you were okay, Spider. Right. Uh, yeah, I, it's a good question. Or is he just like a struggling actor who has an Italian feel to him? Like, is he is basically an extra right. as the oh, other actors in this right. in this commercial are? Has he right. never really broken through with any role? It's a it's a valid question. He clearly exudes Italianness in the ad, and maybe we're, it's we're a recording this obviously before we get the PDpedia on H. HBO, yes. And I just hope that it has a history of <laughs> HBO within the world of Watchmen. So we get some answers on this. Listen, after what was in the PDpedia last week, uh, I think yes. we could just just get just about anything uh, in the context of PDpedia at this point from diagrams uh, to a charting history of the <laughs> Sopranos in the Watchmen universe of uh, our current timeline. So who knows? Uh, I, I'd like to think that the Sopranos maybe existed. I do think it's uh, I do think one of the interesting things about this alternate history that skews out in 1985, but it is in our current timeline. There are famous people that clearly are still famous uh, that that made uh, that made their bones or that found a way. Obviously, Steven Spielberg was working before 1985, but Steven Spielberg is still a huge name within the context of that universe. John Grisham made his way to the Supreme Court, Ezra Klein, Skip Gates, all these people are people that still may, found their way to be famous within the context of the Watchmen timeline. So I, I like to think Michael, Michael Imperioli probably found a way to still make his, his bones somehow. If The Sopranos didn't exist, he found a way to get into something else. Like, who knows what that is? But I'd like to think that this is a, this is the capper. This is the capper cameo. And yet it doesn't sound like New York is doing all that well, Josh. So no, no, uh, the not. world is clearly different enough that maybe these things didn't happen. Uh, the New York, in the context of this ad, has a central park, Josh, where you can walk for hours and not see a single soul. Yeah, I mean, it just, you know, speaking of the leftovers and the idea that, like, 2% 
or it's two percent of the world's population, right? right? It's it's been long enough since uh, we've watched the show that I'm, I'm I may be getting the number wrong, but a significant percent, but not you know uh, much more than two percent. But there's an idea that's positive, like where did the two percent go, and what world did they live in, and like how is the rest of the world there, like just like a gigantic ghost town, and like those are the images that are evoked of the New York City of Watchmen for me is just imagining that it's like a virtually abandoned place, and you know I'm a New York I'm a New Yorker I live. I'm talking to you from New York City right now, and I I can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine like going outside in broad daylight, uh, you know, on like a summer's day, and there just being no one around. Uh, it's crazy to me. Maybe so, the metro actually works though. <laughs> maybe possible. they cleared a lot of those problems up. Like maybe the local trains stay local and express trains trains stay express. Like maybe that works. You know, who knows. But regardless of whether the Metro's working or not, uh, and regardless of what New York looks like or not, uh, they've hired Wade, these these guys who are working on this ad for the New York Tourism Bureau, it seems, to give his opinion. And Wade's opinion is, like, people are still scared. Now, whether Wade is still projecting, Wade says, basically, you hired me to tell you the truth. No hot-blooded Oklahoma male is going to admit that they're scared. I watched uh, them watch, and they were scared. I don't know if he's projecting that he's he's scared as well. I mean, I doubt he's been back to New York since that incident. But there's a lot of reminders there about what his experience probably was or he remembers uh, last time he went to that area. And so I'm not sure he's the right guy to look at this ad. Maybe sugared cereals are a little better. Um, maybe perfumes a little better. This particular ad definitely touches a hot button for him. And he says New York he, that, that he's not ready or that people aren't ready. And it, I think maybe in, in part it's because he's not ready. But he's not ready in 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 maybe in a huge part because he has a little fear of lightning which is the episode title that we see in the the focus group scene here little fear of lightning um, comes from Jules Verne 20,000 leagues under the sea if there were no thunder men would have little fear of lightning so there has to be one you can't have one without the other of course in 20,000 leagues under the sea uh, you have uh, Nemo Captain Nemo which is a friend of Nemo's is referenced as instead of friend of Bill W's uh, in the support group meeting there. But we also have a battle with a giant squid, uh, obviously, in 20,000 leagues under the sea. So if there were no thunder, Josh, men would have little fear of lightning. Do you find that there might be some kind of continual tie-in with whatever 7K uh, and Lady True and Will Reeves are attempting here? Think, I'm thinking generally about the overall plot of the Watchmen graphic novel, which we know happened in the context of this Watchmen story, that the doomsday clock was about to strike that the U.S. and the Soviet Union were at loggerheads and they were somebody was about to pull the trigger and it was essentially about to end mankind. And as Adrian Veidt puts it in the video that Looking Glass watches later in this episode, what could we possibly do to distract them? The bigger weapon that we have is fear. And so he exacerbated that fear or would exacerbate that fear with the dimensional incursion event, with the squid dropping, the hoax that it was. It was meant to make people afraid and focus on something else instead of being at odds. Far as we know, globally, we don't have the same kind of problems in this Watchmen universe. And what we do have is we have Vietnam as a state, and we know Lady True comes from Vietnam. What we have is we have clearly the racial issues that we're seeing on the ground in Tulsa and that we know are not isolated only to Tulsa. So is there some element of what's happening with Lady True uh, and perhaps the senator in 7K that is creating the thunder to to make men have a little fear of light. Yeah. 
I think I think it's very you know I I'm tr- I I was really struck by by the the line from Senator Keene of like we're not just you know we're not just going to repeat the the squid we're you know we're going to do something original and so I I can't stop thinking about what's that original thing going to be and the fact that he when he you know he was like read into to the truth about Adrian Veidt right when he when he got his job um, and it took him years he says to to pirate a copy of the video so there are people in the world who are hooked into the truth of the hoax right like there are people in the world who know about it but it is still like uh and and it's been like reported out like the the rorschach journal but like as far as the rorschach journal as far as it's looked at as a a cultural document is like mostly like the stuff of like myth and gossip and it's like uh you know rumor mongering it's conspiratorial thinking is there a plan in place to once again change the world by defeating the squid essentially right by like destroying the squid by demystifying the squid is it going to be like the death of fake news to a certain extent right like is that is that what's being planned here and is that something that lady true which if that if that's it you know the 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 true shall set you free you know like the the name uh being being really nicely linked in but is it something that like lady true and 7k are in league on do they have conflicting viewpoints on it i think it's worth segueing or at least bringing in the adrian Veidt scene from this episode which was glorious uh in, <laughs> into the into the conversation yes because one of the things that i'm wondering is certainly we're seeing so if we if we want to say that every adrian Veidt sequence from these episodes has been like a year right so now we're on year five we're on year five of adrian Veidt. uh adrian Veidt disappeared years before presumably before the events of watchmen uh, the TV series. I believe that the, the PDPedia ancillary material makes that clear. And other information baked into the show itself makes it clear. So if if there's like several years still left before episode nine, you know, the final episode of the season. So if he's like gone for nine years and then he's like he suddenly shows back up. And if he is in any way like in like the continued like diminishing mental state that he seems to be getting into the increasing frustration of Ozymandias like is there something that's happening here where the plan is to break Adrian Veidt and then bring him back into the world at a time where he is ready to publicly verify the hoax video right like is there a way of like getting him to cop to the hoax and then he is going to be globally held accountable and the ending of watchmen the series would be something to the effect of the world changing once again knowing that the last 30 some odd years of progress were built on the back of a lie were built on the backs of all of these millions of bodies and how do we restore that how do we contend with that It's a good question, right? Because what we know about Adrian Veidt at this point now is that he seems to definitely be in captivity. It seems like he maybe is on one of the moons of Mars. Is that your read? Is it Phobos or Deimos? Uh, It it looked like it. I am no astrologer. (laughs) And in fact, if you listen to my Lost podcast, uh, uh, Lost Down the Hatch, two things. One, I said astrologer instead of astronomer. Uh, And the other being that uh, I very famously skipped my astronomy 
anatomy lecture back in college so I wouldn't miss Lost every week. So do not look to me to the stars. But it was my read, yes, that that was Mars. It looked Mars-ish to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, me too. You know, there's there's satellites surrounding it. We know that there are, there are satellites that are documenting Dr. Manhattan footage in that first episode, if you believe it, at least. So it would track for me that he is on Mars, and that would only continue to strengthen the ideas that Ozymandias is somehow trapped at the mercy of Dr. Manhattan. It says, as he's spelling out the, the, the B-O-D-Y-S, the bodies, of course, that's how you spell it, on the moon, it says, save me, D. You don't see what the rest of the word from D is. Is that save me, Dr. Manhattan? <laughs> that sa- seems like there would be a lot of bodies for that you one. Know? Is it save, save me, Doc? Save me, Doc. Uh, Jules and Vern, to, <laughs> to speak of Jules Vern. Uh, is it save me, Dan? Save me, Night Owl, right? Uh, yeah. Even though he's, he's locked up. Who are some of the other... Uh, the other D's that we could be discussing. That's a good here. question. I that the, the clearly he save thinks, me Damon Lindelof. <laughs> save me Damon. Yeah, that would be phenomenal. Uh, clearly, he thinks that someone who sees that on the satellite will will understand that message, right? Whatever it is, uh, it, it's not save me President Redford. It's not save me Lori. It's not save me. The, these are there are very few people who he could be communicating with via that satellite. It seems like it could be Doctor Manhattan as he's yanked back by the game warden he says the adrian veidt says like there is no god your god has abandoned you and the game warden says master veidt is correct our god has left us and it's unlikely he'll return so is their god the person who created whatever this karnak like uh, bubble that adrian veidt uh, apparently is trapped in on one of the moons of mars what that had to be dr manhattan it would seem like and it, maybe it seemed like adrian veidt might have entered into that place partially in agreement of what was going on he thought it was a paradise it turns out it's a prison he wants to be saved from it he wants to escape from it there were rules uh, to his being there so why would dr manhattan do that and why would he do it seemingly untold years before the period of whatever is to come directly now in Tulsa. If you'll recall in the graphic novel, one of Adrian Veidt's main challenges in pulling off the dimensional incursion event was having to find a way to distract Dr. Manhattan. Uh, He did two things, one of which we've talked about on this podcast specifically. Well, I guess the main thing that he did was he created sort of a whisper campaign to make Dr. Manhattan think that he was causing cancer to those around him. This caused Dr. Manhattan to retreat to Mars, and that got him off the radar. And then at the ground level, he was also running some interference so that Dr. Manhattan wouldn't be able to see appropriately what was happening and where and when, uh, that he would be distracted by uh, the fields that Adrian Veidt was creating to distract Dr. Manhattan at the ground level there in Antarctica. So those are the two things that he did. But I think removing him from the board while he was formulating his plan is the key one. So if you live in a world where Dr. Manhattan himself is somehow involved with Lady True, as we speculated about in this podcast, or Dr. Manhattan himself may be somehow involved in this plan, whatever is being executed at the level in it is in Tulsa, then it makes sense that just like Adrian Veidt did with Dr. Manhattan, maybe Dr. Manhattan's move was to take Adrian Veidt off the board so that Adrian Veidt couldn't interfere with whatever the plan is. Uh, that seems to me to be part of perhaps everything that's happening here, that Adrian Veidt was removed by 
by Dr. Manhattan for that reason so that he wouldn't get in the way of whatever Lady True is doing. And Dr. Manhattan, apparently, if he is involved, would feel like that was important enough. Lady True's work was important enough uh, for humanity or for some other reason. I think what we're getting at is if Dr. Manhattan is involved in this in some way, He's much more directly involved with humanity than I think we would assume from a Dr. Manhattan who has removed himself to Mars and seemingly doesn't care about humanity. Um, the Dr. Manhattan that would involve himself such that he would place Adrian Veidt in captivity for some other reason would be a Dr. Manhattan who was more directly involved in caring about what was happening such that he felt he needed to remove Adrian Veidt. So I, I do think we're still trending towards seeing Dr. Manhattan on this show. And I do think clearly with what we're finding out out more and more about Adrian Veidt here, including the possibility that he's trapped on Mars, and Adrian Veidt seems to be trying to communicate with him, and that he was maybe involved in getting him in that prison. I don't know who else could possibly have built it, and I don't know who else would have been their god on uh, the planet right. uh, who left them. That's Dr. Manhattan, if I've ever heard him described. So it has to be that he was involved. So it has to be that he cares about humanity, I think, more than it, or we're letting on. So what does that look like? Um, well, yeah, when he when he leaves the at the end of the comic book, you know, he says, I think I'll, I'll leave this galaxy to create new life. There's the question of, is that is that as far as where Adrian Veidt is? I think the satellites indicate to me that that would be very difficult to, right. <laughs> to be having. Like He's that not level. in another galaxy, right? Yeah. Um, but if the idea is like for Dr. Manhattan to create new life and if, you know, Dr. Manhattan has kind of like a very profound appreciation for for life again in at the end of the comic book through like watching Lori react to learning who her father is. And if that stayed with him, and if he, you know, has now like seen and agrees with the fact that Adrian Veidt, what he did, takes humanity away from the brink of mutually assured destruction. But is there is there still like a further betterment of humanity that might be in play in Dr. Manhattan's mind? And is there something that he can do about it? And is is that uh, having to do with the truth shall set you free and by keeping Veidt out of the realm of you know out of out of like the mortal realm for all intents and purposes for a number of years even the smartest man alive could potentially start to go a little bit crazy much as how the the world's only demigod in dr manhattan was uh, able to be caught off guard in the comic book and in in doing that does that does that put adrian veidt in a position that when he does inevitably collide with the main story again will he have been broken to such a point that he is either willingly or goaded into copying to his role in the hoax and the world at large then getting that level of information because that's a, that's the next seismic event right like that is uh that is yet yet again universe altering for the people who live in the universe of definitely Watchmen. It seems to be where we're headed in some way, shape, or form. Lady True's connection to Dr. Manhattan or Dr. Manhattan's involvement in all of this is, the, I think, the, the 11th hour, if you will, uh, answer to a lot of the mystery of what's happening. And you've already speculated, of course, on this podcast that there may be direct involvement from the graphic novel, how Lady True was born, who her mother was. Uh, Dr. Manhattan's involvement in Vietnam is directly shown in the graphic novel, of course. Whether or not that's the story we get or, or there is some other connection between the the two of them, there does definitely seem, in my mind, you can imagine 
it's a lady true who purchases Adrian Veidt's company, but who still thinks highly of him, highly enough to build a statue. If that's the case, uh, if that's what she's looking at, if that's not, if Adrian Veidt is somehow not contained directly in that statue uh, in some form of Dr. Manhattan wizardry, then you got to imagine that she took over his company for a reason and that Dr. Manhattan was probably directly linked in some way. So we're going to find that out. I'm sure of it. Where where we find it out, are we going to find it out quickly? Will Justin Thoreau be playing Dr. Manhattan, as you hope? Will there be other connection to the characters in our story? Why will it occur in Tulsa? All these things are still TBD. What was falling from the sky that made Lady Manhattan have to buy the Clark Farm? Was that some way? Was that Adrian Veidt in some way, Josh? Was he coming back to Earth? And is this part of the plan? We don't know, obviously. But I think all these things we're heading toward answers on. And we're probably going to find out that before we find out who lube guy was and, <laughs> well we know who lube guy is come on <laughs> pd show yourself yeah he's uh, gonna write in pdpedia well that's how we're gonna find out i hope so i hope so uh antonio anything else from this episode that you wanted to touch on before we wrapped up it, I just think the, I mean, I love the needle drops throughout. I, I think the use of music in this episode, even though obviously that's a Damon Lindelof hallmark and that is something we've seen consistently in the course of this series, uh, it just felt so lyric and so connected to what was happening with Wade's story. Uh, we had a couple different Frank Sinatra versions of songs, New York, New York, of course, some Enchanted Evening. We had all the various versions of Careless Whisper playing throughout, and I can't forget we had my favorite current artist, Sturgill Simpson, the outlaw king of kentucky we had a very memorable sturgill simpson song in the leftovers I'm, I'm glad to see that dna is coming through to this version of a damon lindelof show and seeing sturgill simpson turtles all the way down playing in the the bar scene here uh with wade uh and trixie i guess i don't know if we know her name but the seventh uh, k uh lady who brings wade into the fold the radiologist so really, the radiologist i love yeah that's very lost of you i love the music <laughs> uh, the use of the music in this episode i thought uh, just throughout it did a really good job of of bringing Wade's sadness to the front. Um, even later in the episode, when he has seen the video, and we show him looking at uh, the Mercy perfume, and the cover of Careless Whisper is playing, and we see just a, a brief shot as we're hearing "Guilty Feet Have Got No Rhythm" of Wade's feet staggering out of the funhouse. I just think having these songs constantly coming up throughout the episode did a great job of showing that Wade's head was really always being affected by what was going on. The echoes were playing throughout his mind, and it was never something that was far from his thoughts. I thought a really, really good job uh, with what was going on there. What about Lori? We didn't, we didn't talk a ton about her, but uh, she she calls him mirror guy throughout just as a microaggression. She's just so great. Oh, she's so great. Her. She's great. Jean Smart is incredible on this show. I'm I'm I was really sad to to lose Don Johnson as Judd Crawford so quickly. I think it's a real testament to the to the show that the show has uh, has has maintained like this this great level of energy all throughout when there was such like this magnetic presence in that first episode through the Don Johnson character and i think it's also a testament to the fact that with just like one appearance right basically other than like the little brief flashback you see him in in episode two that don johnson's performance was so so memorable but i'm thrilled that we are in this story position where gene smart as laurie blake is in charge of the tulsa pd these people seem to not care for her very much and the feeling <laughs> feels pretty mutual yeah. uh i just love like the just the cavalier way she's like oh yeah one more thing what what pills because i bugged your cactus and like i heard you and angela talking about the stuff She's so good. She's 
so great. She's an incredible character and a wonderful performance. Like Looking Glass, who is able to see the truth in, in these moments uh, in people, she seems to be able to really cut through to the heart of the motivations of the people in the police precinct because she knows what it's like to be a masked Avenger, right? So she understands the motivation. When she tells Angela people wear masks to cover up the pain and Angela's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I do this and blah, blah, blah. And Laura's like, yeah, for the pain. And in this episode, she says to, to Looking Glass, she says, like, maybe you joined the police force after the White Knight because you'd be able to cover your face all the time. She knows that he's still afraid. Like, she absolutely knows everything just in a second uh, that is motivating him about his fear. Uh, she's able to clock that and really bring it clear to, to the surface. And just like I said, with her microaggressions and her direct aggressions, really undermine uh, and take Looking Glass's lunch. Now, I'm not talking about Josh's sandwich with lettuce. That's a different lunch uh, in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also really think uh, that we got the scene with Cynthia Tillman, Wade's ex, uh, in her cloning, cloning dogs, facility, yes. cloning dogs, just <laughs> with uh, when the clones don't work. It's pretty brutal. Right in the trash can. I mean, like we, <laughs> if we demonized Adrian Veidt for what he was doing with those uh, with, with the fetuses in, in Fetus Lake, I feel like we can't we can't let Cynthia off the hook for just Not throwing a dog in the oven or whatever it yeah. was she was doing. It was terrifying. Yeah, I don't think that that was to grow the dog. I think that dog was a reject. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, it's brutal. Like, honk, honk. Yeah, the, the, brutal. The, the, exactly. the, wrong, the wrong egg going the way yes. of Veruca Salt. Oh, damn. Uh, it's brutal. But it, <laughs> it is, I think, interesting in that. So what, we, what we've got in the Watchmen world, of course, is we have this weird world where technology was eschewed in some way. Uh, so some technology was eschewed, right? We have no internet. Uh, we have no cell phones. What we do have... We have voice recognition technology with Lori able to play her CD player by saying play Devo. We have clearly whatever is going on with Lady True and the what we know is pharmaceutical technology that she's able to do, uh, taking an unviable egg and, and making a baby out of it and doing whatever is happening with nostalgia pills, uh, putting memories in pill form. What we saw in that clinic was not just cloned pets. It seemed like everybody that worked there was a twin of some sort. So there does seem to be some really advanced medical science that's happening happening in the context of the show whether Cynthia ties into the story any more than just being the person who told Wade about the nostalgia pills I don't know uh, but I don't think it's an accident that we saw the full nature of that clinic and we saw exactly what she was able to do maybe not so well in the case of the dog but that that was her business and that's something that that is out there in the context of this world I don't know if clones or doubles are going to play a part in what's happening we've seen the clones in the Vite storyline as well so it, it is it is just something that that's on my radar that pings to me uh, in a world where the technology is a little skewed. Uh, we do have that. We also obviously have hologram technology and a lot of the advanced DNA capabilities that we see in Greenwood. So a lot of what's happening in the show is not scientifically, it's not Luddite based. They have evolved greatly in terms of certain science areas, but not others. So I don't know if the Cynthia part will come back or not. Speaking of things, I don't know uh, how they will come back. We see Hooded Justice again in this episode, Josh. Yeah, yeah, we get a little bit of a of a blip on the screen of what's going on in American uh, Hero Story. That's Hooded Justice with Captain Metropolis. That's straight from the comic book as well. And then the the squid alarm happens, so we don't even get to finish the scene. We don't get to finish the scene. We don't get to see it finish or anyone uh, finish in the scene. But what we do see ultimately is some speculation between Panda and Red Scare about who Hooded Justice is. Panda Dr. Manhattan, is right? It's like, Dr. Obviously. Manhattan. <laughs> it's so good. I've seen every episode, he says. I've seen every 
episode. Super Dr. Fun. Manhattan can't time travel. That's uh, so hysterical. Yet again, another reminder of what people think Dr. Manhattan's powers are or aren't. Yet again, us wondering who Dr. Manhattan may be in the context of the greater story. Is he posing in plain sight? Is he one of the characters on our show that we're watching? Uh, have we been watching him the whole time or not? And also questions about who Hooded Justice is, which I right. think is uh, something we speculated about since the beginning here uh, with the PDPedia materials, especially making uh, connections between Hooded Justice and what's happening maybe in the past in, in our story, uh, TBD, I think, on that. Hopefully we'll get some clarity on that before the end of the season because that's been a running line throughout. But one of the things that hasn't really been a running line throughout is Night Owl. And in the PDPedia materials from last week's episode, of course, which we loosely referenced, what we got was we got a heavily redacted version of a story of when Lori Blake was brought in from the cult. Uh, they caught her and Dan doing one last job. Dan refused to comply or refused to participate in what was going on. And it sounded like what Lori did was use her knowledge about what actually happened on 11-2 as leverage uh, to try to get herself out of trouble. But Josh, what was the incident that they were involved in in their one last job? It's a famous incident, right? Yeah, it was the Oklahoma City bombing. It was the Oklahoma City bombing. They stopped they, it. They averted, yeah. They averted it by killing Timothy McVeigh. It sounds yeah. like <laughs> it sounds like that's what happened. Yeah, extra judicial executions. Uh, Crazy. Perfect. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, but that that happened. That happened in the context of the story. That does appear to be what happened um, that put Dan Dreberg in jail. Um, whether or not that is ultimately what got Lori out of trouble, which was her using that leverage of her knowledge of 11-2. She very clearly does that. She also talks about how Dan is the one who built uh, the dock in a box. And then we see the diagram for the dock in the box from last week's PDPedia. So continual hits from PDPedia, Josh. I'm loving this. I'm loving it as well. And I'm loving The Watchmen. And as of this episode, Antonio, we are already over halfway finished with the season of Watchmen and maybe the series of Watchmen if there's nothing beyond this first season. And maybe the series, right. Uh, it is The themes have been so strong throughout. Uh, I'm really loving it. In the support group, uh, the guy had the monologue about trauma getting locked into DNA. It's like I inherited her pain. Uh, that is not lost on me, considering the Angela Abar story right. uh, and finding out, Angela finding out what her family's history was, uh, that this is a story in Watchmen that is telling these tales, uh, that is talking about this inherited trauma, that he's not afraid of making that front and center in terms of, you talked about on this podcast, how Damon Lindelof was reading The Case for Reparations, and that that in and of itself in that work uh, talks about how trauma is inherited and why uh, and what needs to be done to correct it. So I, I really like how the themes are staying right at the top of, of all of the episodes uh, and that have run consistently throughout and we've not lost track of that through line that seems to be what's happening in some way with the lady true storyline as well so even in an episode like this where we don't see inherited trauma we see wade's direct trauma the trauma that he experienced and how that has affected him in his moment-to-moment -moment decisions in his life what we're also still reminded of is that that trauma is also inherited uh, that he can be someone like trixie or the radiologist as it were um, who didn't even have a direct experience with what happened on 11-2, uh, but watched a movie so many times that she can't help but be scared, if that's even a true story. She told Wade, he didn't say it was bullshit, he knows when someone's lying, so it must have been in some way true, uh, and we see the inherited trauma monologue here, so I just love that the themes of the show are staying front and center, and they're doing a really good job, even episode to episode delivering on that. 
All right, yeah, I'm I'm enjoying these thematics quite a bit myself, and just the show and the way that it's all all constructed. And thankfully, it's not over yet. Let's let's not mourn this thing uh, too early. We still have four more episodes of Watchmen to talk about, including next week is called This Extraordinary Being, directed by Stephen Williams, a, very, a veteran filmmaker and certainly somebody with familiarity with Damon Lindelof. The episode is co-written by Damon Lindelof and Cord Jefferson. Uh, also, should mention that this episode, Little Fear of Lightning, directed by Steph Green co-written by Damon Lindelof and Carly Rae, Carly Rae, who uh, who wrote my favorite episode of Westworld ever, Kiksuya, which was the the great Zon McLernan hour of that show. It's just lots of lots of incredible firepower behind this show that it deserves to be said all the time. <laughs> as 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 often as we as often as we can bring it up. But I think that's going to do it for us for this week. We will be back talking this extraordinary being episode six of season one of Watchmen. If you've not subscribed yet to series regular, we highly encourage that you do so you can find series regular on your podcast app of choice you can also follow antonio and i on twitter i'm at round howard he is at ac mazzaro anything else antonio no i mean i'm just i can't wait to find out if there was a reason why senator Keene sent laurie to tulsa who's on what side are they all working together or separate and is dr manhattan uh hooded justice that's all right. i want to know <laughs> we'll find out for sure stay tuned to thr.com watchman for more coverage as well until next week everybody take care bye